The Buddhism in Breath Summit took place online in 2021 with a group of researchers exploring Buddhist practices of working with the breath or the winds of the body. The event was co-hosted by me, Francis Garrett, and Pierce Salguero, and it was co-sponsored by the Robert H. N. Ho Family Foundation Center for Buddhist Studies at the University of Toronto and Jivaka.net. The following talk is entitled Tumo, Fierce Lady of Yogic Heat. And it's delivered by Dr. Michael Sheehy, who's the Director of Scholarship at the Contemplative Sciences Center at the University of Virginia. Dr. Sheehy has worked on interdisciplinary and intercultural dialogues that link Buddhism with conversations in the humanities, cultural psychology, and the cognitive sciences. And he does research on contemplative practices in Tibetan Buddhist yoga and meditation manuals. You can watch the video of this talk and find other resources from the Buddhism and Breath Summit at jivaka.net. That's J-I-V-A-K-A, jivaka.net, N-E-T. Hello, I'm Michael Sheehy from the University of Virginia. Today I'll be talking to you about Tumo contemplative practice in Vajrayana Buddhism. An outline of what I'll be discussing today begins with what I call yogic Buddhism and breath. We'll then discuss some of the underlying theoretical and philosophical underpinnings of the practice of Tumo and the practice of yogic heat itself. Then switch to discussion of Tumo and the modern imagination and, and really the Buddhist imagination over the last 100 and so years. We'll talk about scientific research on Tumo that's been conducted, some of the physiological effects. And I'll conclude with some discussion on the technologies of breath. Tumo is a paradigmatic contemplative breathwork practice of Buddhist Tantra. The term Tumo literally means Tum, or fierce, and Mo, or lady, or woman. Mo here is a female or feminine marker in the Tibetan language, and is a translation of the Sanskrit term Chandali, a class of goddesses. It's often translated as inner heat or psychic heat or mystic heat or fury fire, etc. You'll find many different translations, though this is not the literal meaning. There's a descriptive yogic language of heat for visualizing fireballs, wearing the clothes of inner heat, eating the foods of yogic heat, stroking or stoking the inner embers, bliss, warmth, etc. Tumo can be a standalone practice or an enhancement practice, a so-called bogdun or enhancement practice to complement ancillary yogic practices. Practice is applied in a modular fashion. And over the history of this practice of Tumo, there's a variety of perspectives that have emerged about when to practice and which ancillary practices are conjoined with Tumo. It's important to keep on, um, in mind that Tumo is embedded within a broader Vajrayana contemplative curriculum. That is to say, there's a contemplative program in which um, Tumo is situated. This begins with the ordinary preliminary practices, reflections on the preciousness and rarity of, of being a human being, having a human life, 
impermanence of that human life and, and your own mortality, but also the impermanence of phenomenon, the transience of all things conditioned, reflections on the pain and the sufferings of the world. That is to say, there are stresses and sense of dissatisfaction that pervades living beings. And there are causes and effects in contemplating karma or, or the um, causality and uh, the physical world, but also of one's own actions. What says, what one says and uh, does and thinks affect other beings as well as oneself. One shifts then to the extraordinary preliminary practices, that is to say, going for refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, the teacher, the source, or the Dharma, the teachings, and the Sangha, or the community of um, support and the networks of support for practitioners. Generating an altruistic aspiration to awaken, that is to say, to um, be free from the pains of the world, not only of oneself, but really understanding in a, in a deeply empathic way how that transfers to all beings who experience pain and suffering in the world and wish um, for them to be free from that. So working towards that. There's a practice called mandala offering of the cosmos in which one imagines the entire physical cosmos symbolically represented on a, on a plate um, with precious gems and substances piled high. And then one offers that as if offering the entire cosmos as a profound act of generosity and extension beyond oneself uh, to the cosmos at large and of the cosmos at large. There's a practice on purification called Vajrasattva deity, um, where the deity Vajrasattva that's pure, crystal, translucent, uh, white deity pervades one's body and mind stream to purify all of the stains and impurities. Practice of guru yoga in which one connects with one's own personal teacher um, who one has studied with and, and received transmissions, but also uh, the broader historical uh, family tree, we might call it, right? The assembly tree of the lineage masters and those who have uh, historically received transmission and, and passed these teachings on into the present. There's generation stage practices um, of deity yoga and completion stage practices, which involve somatic yogas. Generation stage um, is a process of simulating oneself as the sublime body of a deity. These are uh, a main set of Vajrayana practices. Deity yoga, otherwise known as deity yoga, is a performative visualization based on a script called the sadhana. And uh, the sadhana is ritually performed with gestures and bodily postures, mantras that one recites, and visualizations. One begins by reducing all phenomena in the universe to emptiness. From that emptiness, the practitioner generates their ordinary body as the sublime body of a deity in the environment of a mandala, the sights and sounds and smells, the entire experiences of the deity. 
process is designed to transfigure the ordinary habitual bodily image and sense of self in the world to the sublime sense of being a deity in the mandalic surround. The sadhana practice concludes with the dissolution of the deity and a mandala and the mandala in to open silence and re-emergence of the practitioner or the self into the ordinary world. Following the completion stage practice, the uh, generation stage practices are the completion stage yogas that are sets of tantric practices designed to somatically and cognitively transform the ordinary body into a sublime body. That is to say, once the generation stage practices of visualizing oneself and orienting oneself in the environment of the deity and the sublimity of the deity, um, one then shifts to these uh, more somatic body-oriented practices um, that are designed to move one from a non-Buddha body to a Buddha body. These practices apply somatic yogic exercises, breath work, ritual, and visualization to manipulate interior vital bodily energies. And these practices are interested in uh, also harnessing extreme experiences, including hypnagogic states, such as falling asleep, dreaming, okay, also dying, orgasm, etc. That is to say, threshold experiences at the edges of the self, the edges of ordinary self-experience. These yogas are simulate and mimic the radical threshold experiences to transmute these energies into insights. It's important to keep in mind that there are myriad systems of yogic practice, and in particular, these completion stage um, yogas that Tumo breathwork is integral to completion stage yogas and is foundational to transform the body in several tantric systems. Tumo, however, is not a single method. There are techniques are applied with degrees of variation in distinct tantric systems, and you'll find in meditation manuals and in different um, living traditions, different presentations and instructions on Tumo. For instance, Tumor is integral to the tantric systems. Most famously, perhaps, is the six yogas of Naropa. But there's also six yogas of Nguma. See a painting of Nguma here. The Lamdre, six yogas or six Vajra yogas of the Kala Chakra, completion stage, Gya Samaja, completion stage yogas, etc. You'll also find Tumo in the post-tantric systems of Dzogchen and Mahamudra. There's a discourse within uh, Vajrayana about whether the body or the mind are, are primary and predominant. And in fact, um, depending on the tradition and, and, and the sort of series of teachings that you're receiving, um, one will place the body or the mind or the cognitive or somatic processes um, as predominant. Here, this 13th century Tibetan yogin, Yang Gompa, says, if you don't understand the actual abiding nature of the body, 
you don't understand the vital point of the meaning of meditation. So clearly here, Yang Gompa, and this is in a book uh, that he wrote, a text on the subtle body, is placing the body at the center of the discourse. So in order to understand uh, Tumo, we have to have some understanding of the anatomy of the subtle body um, within tantric physiology. The philosophy of Tumo is that the life depends on warmth. So heat is volitionally mobilized to transform the person. It's very important that uh, there's an understanding that at the, the primal basis of life, there is warmth or heat. And there are models of, of the gestation of the human body that begin with, with warmth at its core. And uh, Tumo is a practice that harnesses this warmth in order to transform life. Tumo practice is based on the tantric physiology and an understanding of how to manipulate the underlying flows and mechanisms of the subtle body. Within tantric models of the body, uh, you'll find a typical threefold orientation, a coarse or, or physical body, a subtle and an extremely subtle body. That is to say, um, a Shinto Lu and a Shinto Trawi Lu, these subtle and extremely subtle. The subtle is a visceral body. It's a felt body. It's a body with affect and can be manipulated and mobilized via interoceptive methods. It's also referred to in the literature as a Vajra body or an adamantine body. And typically when we're discussing um, this Vajra body or the subtle body, we'd say it's constituent of Tsa Lung Tigle, as to say the channels, the winds, and these nuclei. A uh, subset of the channels are the chakras. Channels are three tube-like pathways that run vertically from the brainstem to the perineum, that is the space between the anus and the genitals, the base of the spine, and align parallel to the spinal cord. There are subsidiary channels throughout the body as well, but these are three primary channels. And along the, the, the central channel or tube, um, are chakras, which are vitality centers or wheels that rotate clockwise and in some traditions counterclockwise along the central axis of the body at the crown, the throat, the heart, the navel, and the genitals. Again, um, there are different placements in different tantric systems and different numbers of chakras, four and six and so forth. Winds, or what we might call wind breath, are currents of breath and vital energy that circulate, flow up and down the channels. Right? So these are the movements, the currents. The nuclei are refined seminal essences that resemble the shape of liquid drops. Sometimes these are translated as drops. Here we have two photos of 20th century Tibetan exemplars, the 16th Karmapa, Rangjung Rigpe Dorje, and Dilgo Kense, uh, both seated in these yogic postures, holding these positions uh, associated with, with Tumo practice. There are a series of different postures and yogic exercises performed 
with all the completion stage yogas and Tumo specifically. These are called in, in different traditions, Tsalung or uh, Trulkor, the magical devices, uh, and are practices or exercises for training the physical body, Lujong. It's important to keep in mind also that Tumo is a contemplative practice and um, it's really a formal practice. The practice of Tumo mobilizes vital winds and energies within the subtle body to enter into the central channel. And, and this, is, this is the, the um, primary theory of Tumo practice, to mobilize the vital winds and energies into um, the central channel, enabling these currents to be harnessed for transform, for transformation, for transformative ends. So principles of this practice that are important to keep in mind are that this is a formal practice, that there's a, a time, a, a setting, a location, a, a posture, an intent that is set that these aren't, this isn't practiced in an ad hoc fashion, sort of on the fly or, or off the cuff. The Tumo follows a scripted sequential technique that engages the body, the breath, and the mind. And that there's a formula uh, to the practice, although there may be variations, uh, it is formulaic. It involves monitoring one's experiences and making adjustments to emergent experiences, to signs and measures uh, that may be described in the literature or, or by one's teacher, but also pitfalls and obstacles that might arise. Tumo is practiced in sessions that are measured by temporal durations and, and, and framed within time, within uh, frequency and the regularity of practice, as all practices are that there's an imperative to practice under the supervision of a qualified teacher who can be responsive to emergent experiences, to falling into pitfalls, for instance, um, to signs that might emerge that might not make sense to a, a novice practitioner. And um, this is critical, though we have uh, the literature and in, in instructions and descriptions on how to practice these practices, all of that accumulatively, all the practice instructions in the world um, don't add up to the value of a living uh, teacher who can be responsive to one's experiences. And the outcome of this practice is the coalescence of bliss and emptiness, a kind of non-dual experience. As we talk about heat and the arousal of yoga ki, this is important to keep in mind. So with that as background and a kind of frame of the anatomy of the yogic body and some of the um, associated practices that make up Tumo as a kind of modular contemplative practice, let's now look at a specific instruction from a meditation manual. This is written by Tung Tung Gyalpo, who's a late 14th, 15th century um, Yogin in Tibet who wrote this instruction on the six yogas of Naropa. Antangyapo is famous for building iron bridges across uh, Tibet and, and Bhutan and for introducing Tibetan opera. And in his instruction text here on Tumo, he writes, 
After slowly clearing out the stale air, slowly inhale equally into both nostrils while drawing the winds in and down. Slowly draw up the lower wind, conjoining the upper and the lower winds at the navel. So the winds from the brain and the winds from the perineum or the base of the spine at the navel. By that, the lower winds move, causing a fire to blaze up, ignite this fire, right? Below the navel in a shape like a porcupine's quill. The, the flames are lighting up now like a porcupine's quill. Breathing again makes it blaze up to the navel. At the third retention of the breath, it arrives at the heart, and its heat causes drops, these nuclei, from the hum letter in the head to fall like a string of pearls. Imagine these drops striking the fire at the heart with a sizzling sound. The fire does not go out, nor does it flicker. These profound points are very important. Tong Tung Gyalpo goes on and says, through this process, first warmth will arise, then bliss, then the meditative absorption of bliss emptiness. Here, in a slightly different system, we have a model in this uh, illustration here in the Six Yogas of Naropa of um, the syllables at the chakras, as mentioned, uh, the flow of these three channels from the base of the spine up uh, to the crown of the head. And you see um, the network of the subtle body here, and it's kind of anatomical structure as induced by Tumo. Yogi Kid is induced through sequences of breath retention and forceful breathing, physical exercises, moving and striking the body, and visualization. Practices of Tumo induce thermogenesis. That is to say, the process of generating bodily heat without shivering. And the typical bodily mechanism for thermogenesis is, is, is to shiver. If you get cold, an extreme cold, the body shivers to generate heat. Bodily heat is a symptom of the practice, however, and is not the purpose of the practice per se. The purpose of the practice is inducing yogic heat to experience the warmth of bliss fused with emptiness. Now, we have a famous poem by Milarepa, who um, finds, found himself in, in um, a blizzard, uh, climbing the slopes of, of the mountain, um, in which he finds a meditation cave and describes the, the size of the snowballs like cotton balls falling from the sky and the winds blowing. And um, he describes this experience that he has 
at Lachi Mountain in Western Tibet um, as being frigid blizzard in which he finds solace in this mountain. And then he generates this inner heat of Tumo to keep his body warm. And it's uh, important to keep in mind that we have these um, poems and, and, and sort of uh, autobiographical accounts of yogis generating heat to keep themselves warm in the frigid cold of the um, Himalayas. However, um, the purpose from these teachings is not warmth per se, but um, this experience of induced blissful warmth. And that these practices of Tumo are historically practiced with sexual yoga in some tantric context. And we'll often find Tumo and uh, sexual yoga described together in the meditation manuals. There are debates and divergent views about whether a yogin engages with an actual or an imagined consort. And this goes back at least to Naropa, who in his um, commentary on the called the Sekodesha on the Kala Chakra, he is making reference to whether you use an actual consort or an imagined consort um, in these practices and associated sexual yoga practices. Tumo mimics the intense blissful excitation from sexual orgasm, but redirects experiential flows of orgasmic bliss to stimulate a state of bliss-infused consciousness. Physiologically, sexual intercourse redirects blood flow from the genitals to increase blood flow in the brain. Interestingly enough, a similar hemodynamic paradigm is at play in the performance of TUMO. So we find here a kind of parallel paradigm between TUMO and sexual yoga as far as the blood flow from the brain, the, the brain uh, to the genitals. Here's a wall mural, the Lukong in um, Lhasa, adjacent to the Poltala Palace, which we have a depiction of a yogi practicing these subtle body somatic yogas of um, generating heat. Tumo in the modern imagination um, emerges in the early 20th century, and we have um, this figure, Alexander David Neal, who was a Belgian-French explorer and author of numerous books on Tibet. She traveled extensively throughout Tibet, sometimes disguised as a Tibetan nomad. Between 1912 and 1916, she learned Tumo from Lachin Gomchen Rinpoche and practiced in a cave in Sikkim. So she actually practiced these um, under the supervision of Gomchen Rinpoche. In 1924, Alexander David Neal was the first European woman to visit Lhasa when foreigners were forbidden there. In 1929, she published Magic and Mystery in Tibet, originally in French and soon after translated into English, that described Tumo and other yogic practices as psychic sports and breathing gymnastics. In her description of Tumo, as a breathing gymnastic or psychic sport, she writes, Upon a frosty winter night, those who think themselves capable of victoriously enduring the test are led to the shore of a liver, of a river, or a lake. If all the streams are frozen in the region, a hole is made in the ice. 
a moonlight night with a hard wind blowing is chosen. Such nights are not rare in Tibet during the winter months. The neophytes sit on the ground, cross-legged and naked. Sheets are dipped in the icy water. Each man wraps himself in one of them and must dry it on his body. As soon as the sheet has become dry, it is again dipped in the water and placed in the novice's body to be dried as before. The operation goes on in that way until daybreak. Then he who has dried the largest number of sheets is acknowledged the winner of the competition. Now, this sheet drying competition, um, as she says, is uh, not a myth or something that she made up or imagined. There are sheet drying ceremonies in Tibet. They go on till this day. Here's a photograph of one happening at Nanjik Monastery in Tibet. And um, this account by Alexander David Neal really set the stage for, for associating Tumo with sheet drying and this sort of um, extraordinary phenomenon. You find different expressions of this within popular culture. For instance, here we have a cartoon. The first um, slide reads, when you are able to dry these wet robes with only your own body heat, return to me, the teacher says to his novice disciple. In the second frame, the disciple goes off with these wet sheets, wraps himself. You see the steam start to rise off the body of the meditator. And once he's dried, he brings it back. And in the third frame, we have the disciple giving his sheet back to his teachers and his teacher responding, you are ready. Right? And the final frame, the punchline is, you know, go to the laundromat for 25 cents a piece for the monks to dry your laundry. So we have these popular depictions and popularizations of Tumo and uh, starting certainly by the 1920s and 1930s, Alexander David Neal, um, Evans Wentz translates uh, some works that in, uh, include Tumo. And we have now uh, popularizations of Tumo where people are practicing Tumo or practicing derivatives, claimed to be derivatives of Tumo. If you go, for instance, to YouTube and, and put in the word Tumo, you'll find all sorts of um, practices and, and instructions by, by all sorts of folks who are um, eager to teach Tumo. One of those associated with this has become Wim Hof and the Wim Hof method. However, on the Wim Hof method webpage, they have a disclaimer that says, quote, some people say Wim Hof is a practitioner of Tumo, but the Wim Hof method and Tumo are comparable, but different techniques. So here you have um, a clear distancing, yet um, close language saying that they're comparable, yet different. You will find certainly students or people who have studied with uh, Wim Hof making claims that they're teaching Tumo. 
So I now shift to the scientific research that's been done on tumor. And we have several cases. This begins with Herbert Benson's research, who was a cardiologist at Harvard University and was one of the first scientists to seriously study meditation, really, and began with studying TM or transcendental meditation in the 1970s. And then the first really to study Vajrayana contemplative practices. In 1981, he conducted the first study of a Tibetan monks, of Tibetan monks practicing Tumal. The study demonstrated intentional regulation of body heat for the first time. Two of the three Tibetan Tumo practitioners in this study demonstrated activation of the sympathetic nervous system, evidenced by increased metabolism and oxygen consumption. And at this time, this was a, a radical, really, breakthrough of understanding that there can be um, volitional or voluntary manipulation and change of the sympathetic nervous system. Koznikov, Maria Koznikov and her colleagues in 2013 conducted another study that found TUMO increases core body temperature and elicits an arousal response, again, confirming the findings of Benson. They measured TUMO practitioners to voluntarily raise both peripheral, as to say heat on the fingertips and, and the toes, and core body temperature. The study demonstrated that activity of the sympathetic nervous system significantly increases. Thermogenesis induced during TUMO raised body temperature above the normal range into the fever zone, as to say almost 101 degrees Fahrenheit. And if you see the chart here, it's really off the charts, the, the body temperature. Visualization is found to be critical to override the threshold of the fever zone. And this is a very interesting finding by um, Koznikov et al., that practitioners can raise their core body temperature for, for, um, to the fever zone without visualization and only breath work, but can only override the fever zone with visualization. So this shows influence of the kinesthetic imagery and the cognitive mechanisms underlying the practice, that it isn't mere manipulation of the physical body, uh, but that there are these visual and cognitive dynamics at play that are just as instrumental and influential. There are stunning differences between those been, who practice TUMO under cold exposure and those um, Practice uh, not practicing TUMO. In particular, profound vasa or blood vessel dilation and blood flow to different organs. Profound increase in cerebral blood flow, which is a significant marker because cerebral blood flow usually doesn't change dramatically except in shock states. For instance, you can stand on your head for significant duration, and there will not be dramatic change in blood flow to the head uh, or cerebral blood flow. Drying wet sheets, practitioners showed vasodilation, indicating hot internal blood flow to peripheral body and brain. It is an open question, however, I'll contend, um, and, and would like to pose a, as a kind of worthy experiment to, to scientists interested in this, 
about whether brain regions activated during TUMO correspond to the same brain regions activated during sexual orgasm. And we've made the correlation or um, have observed the correlation made within the literature and the tradition between sexual yoga and TUMO. So it's an open question whether there are correlations in the brain. The redirection of blood flow may direct blood to different regions of the brain, such as the prefrontal cortex or other regions associated with enhanced cognition. So in conclusion here, I'd like to talk um, and reflect about working with technologies of breath in, and summarize some of the points here. Breathing techniques, including breath retention, forceful and gentle breath work, ecstatic breathing, and so forth, are integral to Buddhist contemplative practices. Context of Tumo practice is a broader contemplative practice curriculum of Vajrayana completion stage yogas that cultivate complementary skills of attention, imagination, embodiment, that is to say, Tumo and these other uh, associated or affiliated practices are embedded within a larger curriculum and context. Numerous derivative practices and popularizations have emerged about Tumo in the modern Buddhist imagination and popular spirituality over the last century. Um, this is not limited to North America, but I would argue is a global phenomenon. And many of these have origins in the sensationalization of TUMO starting in the early 20th century. Research shows TUMO can be a kind of intentional shock method to the body that activates arousal of the sympathetic nervous system and increases cerebral blood flow. However, this can be injurious and may even cause death under certain Conditions, that is to say, one must be wary of practicing uh, TUMO unless it is under the supervision of an experienced practitioner, that one does not go off uh, like a rhinoceros, so they say, um, to practice TUMO. Future research might elucidate further what brain regions light up and where there is increase of blood flow, which studies have not measured well to date. So with that, I'll uh, share some of recommended readings, um, also sources that I've cited throughout this discussion today. And my own contact information, if people would like to get in touch with me with questions or um, have discussion, I'm most open to that. So thank you so much.